Welcome to Closer to the Phenotype, a podcast where scientists discuss and debate new discoveries in published research with a focus on the use of metabolomics to drive multiomics forward. Each episode, we'll discuss a recent publication and dive into the research with a scientific expert or two. I'm your host, Bobby Wiggs. Today, we're going to be talking about three papers, and they are Comparison of Collection Methods for Fecal Samples for Discovering Metabolomics in Epidemiological Studies, Changes in Microbiome and Metabolomic Profiles of Fecal Samples Stored with Stabilizing Solution at Room Temperature, a pilot study, and Comparison of Fecal Collection Methods for Microbiome and Metabolomic Studies. To discuss these papers, I'm joined by Dr. Heloise Breton of DNA Genotech and Dr. Lisa Frankman of Metabolon. Thank you for being here today, and Heloise, go ahead and introduce yourself. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, hi. So yes, my name is Heloise Breton. I am one of the product managers at DNA Genotech, who works in our microbiome team. Uh, more specifically, I've been charged with um, kind of the development projects, so the new products that we want to introduce um, to the microbiome space. And since we've also decided to move into the metabolomic space, um, that's why I'm part of this now. Um, I'm also charged with developing new products for metabolomics. Excellent. And Lisa? Hi, um, I'm Lisa Frankman, and I'm a staff scientist in the research and development group here at Metabolon. And uh, one of my roles has been to um, expand how we work with and our capabilities um, in terms of new types of samples. Um, things like saliva and feces and um, skin, ta- skin tapes and many others. Excellent. So Heloise, I think we're going to kick off for a question for you. So all three of these papers are about trying to stabilize feces at ambient temperature. What have you seen customers trying to do and what sort of solutions is DNA Genotech offering in this space? Yeah, so what's interesting about all three of these papers is that they actually feature one of our existing microbiome products, so the OmniGene Gut device. Um, Now, that product um, was always developed with the purpose of stabilizing uh, samples, uh, fecal samples, for the purpose of um, doing microbiome sequencing on them. Um, So they work very well for that. Um, They stabilize DNA perfectly. They give the right conditions um, to maintain that DNA profile from your microbiome. Um, They also help stop any inhibitors that might come into play when you want to do microbiome sequencing. So they're very much adapted for microbiome purposes. Um, But as any scientist would, um, when you're collecting samples, you want to get the very most out of them. And so I'm not surprised to see that there are many different groups out there who have attempted to do metabolomics with this particular device. Um, One of the common themes of all three of the papers that we're going to talk about today is that there are some pitfalls to using uh, Omnigene for the purpose of metabolomics. And that's not surprising to us. Again, this was not the intended use of the product. Um, And really, when it comes down to it, um, it's meant for stabilizing DNA and not all other types of, of molecules and metabolites. Um, And so it's not too, too surprising that um, we see some issues with the stabilization of metabolites. So when we started noticing this trend and we were getting this regular request from our customers to say, can I also do metabolomics from Omnigene gut? um, We were quick to say, well, that's not what it was intended for, but let us see uh, what we could potentially develop that would be complementary and that would be really well suited for metabolomics. And so that's more where we've focused our efforts since um, since then is trying to find the, an appropriate product that um, that can really stabilize 
fecal metabolites without introducing biases or without um, creating technical difficulties for the labs processing these samples. That's awesome. And Lisa, I think at Metabolon, you've seen a host of people trying various things. And can you talk a bit about that and sort of what you've seen people uh, trying and, and how we've sort of worked on this? And, you know, I think Heloise highlights perfectly that the Omnigene is a, the Omnigene gut tube is a fantastic tube for genomics, but maybe not so good with metabolomics. And what have you seen there and, and, and what's, what's been that? experience. Yeah. So as um, Heloise pointed out, um, this was just a huge unmet need um, among our clients. And uh, we were actually involved in one of the three papers that we're discussing, the, the earliest one by Loftfield and co-authors, uh, which came out in 2016, um, where the samples that they collected into these various um, with these various methods were actually processed um, by Metabolon. Um, and in addition to that, we've had a lot of other clients um, asking us basically, you know, in near desperation for any alternative to having to flash freeze samples immediately after uh, a patient produces them, um, because we can just imagine what a logistical nightmare and frankly, how awkward something like that can be. Um, and so, it's been um, for two years now that we've been working with DNA Genotech on the OmniMet tube. Um, it's almost been, you know, I couldn't wait to finally be able to tell clients that there was something that they could use that is actually designed for and performs very well for metabolomics, given all of these different methods that people were trying, none of which work very well. Right. And I guess, you know, what, can you talk a bit about um, what happens, you know, what happens when you, and I think the papers get into this a little bit, right? And I, um, and I do apologize because I have, I've, I have all three of them laid out. And some of them talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls that happens when you try to run um, the Omnigene tube on metabolomics, for example. So what, sort of what happens there and what, what are some of the issues? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what, the thing that really jumps out at me from all three of these papers generally is the incredible lack of um, sort of standardization and even um, how people are thinking about and reporting these types of data. Um, so um, I've sort of tried to distill down um, what I think are the most important um, things to keep in mind when looking at these types of results. And not coincidentally, those were also the kinds of validation criteria that we used to make sure that the new tube would be um, would, was performing appropriately. So things like metabolite coverage, which compounds are being detected, and you know, pick your favorite device, whether it's Omnigene or these fecal occult blood tests or FOBT cards or um, fecal immunochemical test tubes, um, FTA cards. So coverage, of course is paramount. And um, right then and there, you can already see that one of the studies uh, reported something like a, um, um, like a, reported a really significant drop in the number of compounds. Um, like a th only a third of the metabolites overlapped according to Wang et al. Um, relative to flash frozen samples. So that, that already gives you a little bit of pause. Like, well, if I'm losing a third, two thirds of my metabolites, I'm not really going to capture um, an accurate profile uh, relative to what that sample would look like if it was flash frozen. Um, then the other really big thing um, 
that I don't think is typically thought about very clearly in the literature is both fidelity and stability. So what do we mean when we say fidelity is, let's say we put the sample in the tube and then we immediately freeze it. So we haven't left it at room temperature for any amount of time. We're just comparing what does the tube do to the sample. And um, in many cases, just putting the sample in that tube really distorts the metabolites that people are able to see um, in terms of their levels, not just which metabolites are being detected, but also given that you can detect the same metabolites, do you um, alter the levels that are detected? Um, and that's often uh, looked at with something called a correlation analysis. Um, basically, um, the samples that are high in a particular metabolite when the samples are flash frozen, are they still the highest ones when you use a different device? Um, finally though, fidelity is not the end of the story because the whole point of using these devices is you wanna be able to leave a sample at room temperature for some non-zero amount of time. So that's where stability really comes in. So how much does the sample change as it's sitting in that collection tube or collection kit or on the card for the number, uh, number of days. And um, again, there's considerable heterogeneity across the three papers about um, how exactly they're doing that. Um, so one of them, Wang et al., only looked at under 24 hours at room temperature. Um, Lockfield et al. did four days. Um, I believe Lim et al., which is the third paper, uh, did something like three or four days as well. Um, not really a time course or um, in many ways like a careful analysis of how many biochemicals were changing over time and how much they were changing by. So really there's there's really a lot to unpack there. And in just these three manuscripts, we see a lot of um, differences and lack of standardization for what's important in this type of analysis. That's an excellent point. Well, Heloise, I, I hope that you can shine some more light too. When DNA Genotech was thinking about entering the metabolomics market, how were you thinking about you know stability and fidelity I noted in one of the papers that they they noted that the omni um, omni gene gut tube for genomics was stable for weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, so how um, how was DNA Genotech thinking about that, and and how were you guys approaching that with, with this as well? Yeah, so it's it's really two part for us, and um, and what's interesting is when we developed the OmniGene product um, and we wanted to put it out to the market, uh, the first criteria for us was to show that your microbiome profile would not change. So if you compared a microbiome profile from you know, immediately processed samples or flash frozen samples to OmniGene, you should be able to really see no statistical difference. And so we wanted that same level of fidelity when we developed a metabolomics uh, product, which is why it's a little bit, um, Kind of frustrating to see that people are saying, well, it's it's okay to use Omnigene. Well, it like to Lisa's point, is it okay to lose a third or two thirds of your metabolites? Um, we don't think so. So when we develop a, this new product for the purpose of metabolomics, we wanted to be able to demonstrate that same precision and fidelity that you would expect if you were actually using a, a flash frozen um, sample. So that was test number one. We really had to prove that our data would be just as strong. Um, and then, then you start to look at, well, what's actually feasible in terms of sample stability? Um, we knew that there are many classes of metabolites that are far more sensitive to, you know, their environment and, and changes in them, in their, just in their um, storage conditions than DNA would be. So we had to be realistic and say, how, how long can these 
samples actually remain stable at ambient temperature um, because that's our ultimate goal is to offer ambient temperature stability. Um, so one of the first things that we did was actually talk to, to the potential users of this. We went out and, and talked to the researchers and asked them what they would like to see ideally in terms of stability so that we can actually make our experiments and design our validation in, in scales of something that would be important to them. Um, since Pre, prior to this product hitting the market, the only option was flash freezing, which was very restrictive and, and usually meant samples had to be processed within a few hours. Most of the community told us, you know, if you can at least give us two, three, four days of ambient temperature stability, that will be a game changer for us because that really allows us way more flexibility in terms of when the donor produces the sample and when it returns to the lab. So when we started our experiments, uh, we set out a, a goal of a, the minimum had to be at least three or four or five days around that scale. Uh, and obviously we devised our experiments to push that a bit further and, and see what, um, what our upper limit could be. And we were very pleased to see that um, we were able to reach that seven day mark and offer seven days ambient temperature stability. Obviously, we would love to be able to offer lots more and um, everybody would love, always love more. Um, but in terms of what we were able to validate for now, that is what seems realistic. And since it was a game changer based on what people were telling us, we were extremely happy to be able to deliver that. Excellent. And, you know, I think both of you hit on a similar point here and, I, and I'll open it up to either of you and uh, one of you can start and, and the other one can, can comment. Um, the, the need for an industry standard. So how significant is it in your mind that, you know, you look at, you look across these, these three papers and all of them make the same call out. They all say there hasn't been a comprehensive study of what is the best method outside of fresh frozen for collection of fecal samples. And how, how significant was the need to have an industry standard, to have something where you go, I have a reliable partner that I can trust and, and I believe in the, in the fidelity and the stability of this tube. And I guess um, either one of you can start with that and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think it makes a huge difference. And I mean, um, Heloise has already used the term game changer and I would totally agree with that. I, I actually also wanted to highlight to your point about the lack of a standard. Um, a lot of the tubes use 95, excuse me, a lot of the uh, publications, um, I think actually possibly all three, use 95% ethanol as um, one of the sort of options for um, collecting a sample that isn't flash frozen. And in um, Loftfield at all, 95% um, ethanol performed not too terribly badly. Um, it, it, was perform it performed better than uh, either of the other two options, the FIT and the FOBT. But then the other paper that used at 95% ethanol, uh, weighing it all from 2018, um, it performed really badly. I mean, it had only about two thirds of metabolites overlapping and the interclass correlation coefficient, which you'd like to see it being above 0.9, it was like in the 0 0.3, 0 0.35 range. So what happened with a 95% ethanol? And what I really think happened there is that it's a homebrew solution. It's somebody, aliquoting 95% ethanol. Um, it's not convenient. Um, it's just not standardized. Um, whereas having a kit that's made by a company like DNA Genotech, um, where their entire business is producing 
sample collection devices, um, I think will give researchers something that they can trust um, and, you know, just take one variable, one really big variable out of their study design from Metabolomics. Well, and not just researchers, providers, right? Like Metabolon. We can we can also trust yes. DNA genotyping. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, we certainly feel, um, you know, the reason that we um, spent so long and, and worked together so collaboratively for so long uh, was that to make sure that we could feel confident in recommending this device, new device, the OmniMet, to our clients when they ask us, what can I do that's not flash freezing? And it's really great to have been able to get to that point where we can help our clients meet that need. Heloise, any additional thoughts there? Uh, absolutely. So I am not surprised um, that we're seeing these standardization issues in the metabolomic space. It is something that we um, have been struggling with for years in the microbiome space. Um, we've had to do a lot of education around this idea that um, your methods are not comparable to your neighbors if you guys aren't thinking of standardizing across the board. Um, and standardization can take so many different aspects um, from the minute your donor is collecting the samples to the time that they get um, analyzed and uh, really um, studied. And so we, we try to standardize at every level uh, to overcome these challenges that that. Lisa has just highlighted across these very small studies, you know, that were conducted in very, very uh, controlled laboratory environments, which is typically not how studies go in the real world. Um, so, for example, our form factor of our device is um, is very different from anything else you'll see on the market. And one of the reasons why we we like this form factor is that it really standardizes. Um, how your donor collects the sample and that whole donor experience. So they're not introducing, you know, one gram of feces into their tube versus their, their next donor who might introduce, you know, 10 grams, which then makes it really complicated to understand whether the, the tubes that were used, these homebrew tubes were actually being used efficiently. Um, and then there's the whole kind of manufacturing aspect, which uh, again, Lisa brought up what, where if you're making homebrew tubes, who knows what's actually going into those, if there are any, you know, quality controls and quality metrics in place. Uh, whereas if you turn to a device that's manufactured in, uh, you know, a, a GMP facility, so a good manufacturing um protocol facility, um, you get a lot more assurance of the quality of the product that you're getting. And then last but not least, you need something that can accurately deliver on, on your data and accurately um, stabilize your sample so that if you do decide that you're going to compare to somebody across the world who's done a similar study and you both use the same method, um, you should get the same results. And, and that just comes from exhaustive testing of the, the device before it, it hits the market. And so we've worked on all, all of those aspects. Um, and, and we just hope that people are, are very aware of them as they enter the space of, of metabolomics um, so that we don't end up with lots of good research, well-intended research, but that is very hard to, to really use and make um, significant discoveries and conclusions because we can't compare them one to the next. You know, Heloise, I think you uh, you scooped a comment slash question that I was going to have, which is, you know, Lisa talked about the potential for sort of quality control issues in this. I also think 
there's some some unique value proposition in the device itself, right? The physical attributes of the device, the fact that you do have the bead to homogenize the sample, and and the fact that this it it does measure exactly the same amount, and and those things are also significant. And can you talk a little bit about that and how that also influences the quality of the data that you produce? Uh, absolutely. So um, this form factor that is used for this um, this particular device for fecal metabolomics is a form factor that we've had around for a few years now. It was introduced with our our, fe- our first fecal tube, the, the Omnigene tube. And, you know, our team, our, our physical form factor team took years to, to develop this and really find a way to ensure that one, you could control how much sample was going to be put into the tube and so that it wouldn't vary so much from donor to donor. Uh, and then how do you efficiently mix that sample into the stabilization chemistry? Um, because when, when you think about it, if, if you're just introducing, say, a, a ball or a small lump of fecal sample into a tube of stabilizer, but the stabilizer doesn't get the opportunity to really get mixed into the sample, um, effic- you're basically stabilizing the outer portion of that sample and not the inside, which could create lots of uh, variation over time. So the device as it stands, um, we think is is ideal. Um, there's always room for improvement, but it, it really offers so many advantages. Um, and the homogenization is probably the best one. And I think that some of the data that we've run in collaboration with you guys really highlighted um, how you can increase reproducibility if you have a, an appropriate um, collection device versus something that is not optimal for, um, for this type of analysis. Excellent. Lisa, you talked a bit about sort of the results and and what these various papers were seeing in terms of you know, correlation and 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 things like that. Can you talk a little bit about what Metabolon was looking for in terms of stability and validity here, and how that varies from what these papers may have seen, and sort of what we were what we would deem acceptable um, or you know beyond acceptable for for what we could do uh, at Metabolite. Yeah. So as I uh, already alluded to, um, metabolite coverage is obviously um, a really important um, is is tremendously important, especially in a matrix like feces where there's so much variability among individuals. Um, and um, you know, all three of the manuscripts did report um, at least the compound counts. Um, in the flash frozen samples relative to the um, different methodologies that they were testing as alternatives. Um, interestingly, so, and, and I will say that at Metabolon, we um, did not want to see more than a 5% loss of compound coverage because we really do think that in a discovery metabolomic setting, um, we we have to cast as wide a net as possible and it's really not acceptable to be losing large numbers of potentially important bio, uh, biochemicals. Um, I think it's actually also important though to note that even among these three papers, only one was using um, the definition of metabolites that we would sort of agree with at Metabolon, which is a tier one identification using um, a pure chemical standard. Um, the other two um, papers were using um, metabolite features or LCMS peaks as a proxy for uh, metabolites, which is is quite problematic because we know that um, metabolites, a single metabolite gives rise to uh, many different LCMS features and not all LCMS features are necessarily due to metabolites, uh, which is why we think the library-based approach is so important for accurate identification of metabolites. So that's, and that's just getting 
to the point about um, coverage. Um, and, I, and as I already mentioned, there were vastly different results in terms of coverage, depending on uh, which lab and which technique was used. Um, so our requirements also uh, revolved around fidelity um, and stability, where um, another interesting difference that I noticed is that our analysis for, uh, that we performed when we validated the OmniMet tubes is the only one that looked at um, not just the metabolome as a whole using correlation analysis, for example, um, and reporting the median correlation coefficient across all metabolites, uh, but we also looked at classes of metabolites, such as amino acids, um, lipids, um, and at individual metabolites as well. So it wasn't enough for us to be able to say, well, the average metabolite does this. We also set limits on how many or what fraction of metabolites was allowed to go outside of certain limits as an individual basis. Again, because you know we think metabolomics is only as good as the sum of its parts. And so if we are losing accuracy um, in terms of our measurement of the level of too many individual metabolites, well, then we don't have an accurate picture of what that sample really looked like. Um, so um, it was really a, um, a large amount of effort um, that is, um, you know, it took two years. And a lot of that was the analytical validation piece to make sure that we could get um, the best precision and um, verify that we weren't losing accuracy or coverage um, relative to flash frozen samples. Holloway, is anything you'd like to add there? Yeah. Um... Lisa makes a great point, and I, I think one of the things that was concerning for me when I, I read all of these papers was like you say, um, they report in many cases quite a few, like a very small number of metabolites when we we know how much you could actually get out of um, fecal samples, and then they don't comment very much on you know the importance of those metabolites uh, with consideration to the microbiome, and most of the, these papers are alluding to this idea that you can take um, microbiome data and metabolomics data and combine it and, and look at how those two data sets go together. Um, but there's not that much importance put on, well, are these metabolites actually relevant to anything in the microbiome? Um, so they, they don't push that, which is something that, like Lisa mentioned, we did in our analysis to really see, like, are, are we losing you know, categories of metabolites that are actually super important, well, if we, to the microbiome, if that was the case, then, then the product would not be delivering on, um, on what it, uh, what it promises. Um, so that was interesting. And then just this idea that, um, all of these studies were, were done under such controlled environments and, and still they're seeing these, these losses and that it's acceptable to them is, is, um, is a little bit, worrisome, um, because I feel like people are going to look at these papers and draw the conclusion that, well, the, this paper says I can detect metabolites, so I'm going to go with this product for that purpose. Um, and if they don't really dig at the data, they're going to see that there's actually a, a lot of information missing. So, Heloise, uh, you keep alluding to, you know, the controlled nature of these studies. And I think mm -hmm. one of the fascinating things about um, you know, real world human metabolomics. When you when you're doing you know mouse study, you mice eat the same thing. You control them. Is that humans are incredibly variable in their living environment, what they eat, you know, whether or not they smoke, uh, whatever, right? All the different lifestyle choices that we all make. And so, um, one of the things I know uh, from from working on this project that you guys did, and in, in, in collaboration with Metabolon was to go out and biologically test these. So um, you, 
can you talk a little bit more and without you know without giving away the the farm for the folks who uh, who participated? But you did the biological validation too, and, and real world testing, and how was that received, and when what did that look like? And both Heloise and Lisa, I'd like you to respond to that. For the Omni Met Gut device, or for yeah, our... for the, for for the new for the new device for the Omni Met Gut device. Yeah, so we we do try to to go out and get a, a variation of of uh, different types of populations to collect samples from, um, because if if you don't test it in real world conditions, you might think that your product is fantastic, and then when you start to send it, you know, across the world to all these researchers, and they put it into real use cases, um, they come back and tell you, actually, it, it's failing. And, and if you haven't kind of troubleshooted that from the get-go, um, then, you, then you're going to face a lot of issues. So we always try to go after as varied populations as we can um, to, to put this, um, this device through its paces before it, it launches. Um, and luckily, uh, through a collaboration with you, we were able to you know, have groups that tested it with um, young adults or um, uh, premature infants, um, which they have such varied fecal composition, really helps to prove that um, this device works across all uh, different types of feces that you might encounter um, as you carry out uh, fecal metabolomic studies. Um, and that's actually a criteria for us for all of our fecal devices is really demonstrating that, you know, if you are looking at a Bristol stool type one versus a Bristol stool type seven, uh, or if you're looking at vegans versus people who are mostly carnivores or whatever uh, variables you want to include, um, it's going to work no no matter what. Um, and again, because the data is so so varied, um, you have to account for all of these types of data. So that was uh, definitely always a criteria for us, and we were so pleased that we were able to to have access to these populations to test out for us. And Lisa. Um... You actually went a step beyond that, right? We actually ended up with a with a study that had some fresh frozen sample comparative, right? So that you could see the the difference between a fresh frozen and an, an OmniMet sample. Is that correct? Correct. Yes, uh, we um, worked with um, two different research groups um, out there in the real world to perform what we call biological validation, or you could also call field testing um, of basically the whole package of the device run on our platform um, to see like, just like Hillary's was saying, does it, me- does it measure up in terms of its real world performance? And one of those studies was um, really a unique study design that was collected in the clinic. Um, but the, the unique thing about it was that at the same time that sample was going into the OmniMet device, um, an aliquot of that same sample was going into a tube and going directly onto dry ice and into the freezer. So um, that allowed us to basically um, compare now the biological signal that we could detect within that study design in the OmniMet tube and then have the exact same experiment replicated in flash frozen to really compare um, not only the coverage and stability, but even the ability to detect uh, biological signals. And um, you know, the, it, it actually went fantastically well. And I'm happy to say that we are uh, working, we're collaborating with that investigator on a peer-reviewed manuscript that will delve more deeply into all of that data. Um, so, the, so that um, study was a big additional piece of why we felt really confident um, about recommending this device is, you know, it's already been tested and compared to flash frozen, not just 
in um, a hypothetical context or a small number of healthy adults, but in an actual uh, biological question and study setting. The, the other field test was a, a true field test in the sense that it was at home collection with untrained users who simply uh, read the instructions that they were given with the kit, um, just like a, a donor would in any other study um, after the product, now that the product has been launched. And there are primary um, endpoints were successful sample collection and um, clustering of repeat samples from the same individual. So uh, we got repeat samples from the same individual and they, the individual looked like him or herself. And that was done with 30 adult, healthy young adult volunteers. Um, so again, um, just kind of getting that extra level of confidence before launching this into the world that indeed it can perform in a real world environment. Really awesome. I mean, it, it really does speak to the work done by both, both teams to make sure that this industry standard could be set and that people could have confidence in, uh, in the new tube, the OmniMet tube, and, and being sure that they could do that. We're about out of time. So I'm going to ask you for your final thoughts. Lisa, what are your final thoughts? I mean, I'm, I'm tremendously excited um, I'm, um, about this device. Um, I think for anyone who's interested in the microbiome, understanding metabolomics is just the next the next frontier. Um, those small molecule bioactive um, compounds play such a huge role in the communication between um, the microbes uh, and the host, as well as in maintaining the ecology of the gut. And so this device is just going to enable so many more innovative uh, investigations into all of that biology than could previously be thought of. So I think the next year or two are just going to be a fantastic time to be in this field. And Heloise, any final thoughts from you? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, even though we've we've picked at the the three papers that we we were discussing to get today, and, and we've said, you know, there was this issue here, there was this issue there. Um, papers like these, where um, you know the scientists themselves put the uh, methods available to them out there through their paces and do the testing and report on them, um, they're extremely valuable to device manufacturers such as us um, because they help us make the cases that we, we've made, but it's it's much more powerful when it's coming from you know outside our walls. And um, so I'm just really excited for people to now have access to this OmniMet gut device and use this particular device to put it through its paces in terms of how it can perform for metabolomics. We've done such amazing work with all of your help uh, the, at the team at, at Metabolon. And so I'm, I'm excited for people to report and see um, how powerful this device can truly be in giving you the most accurate metabolomic profile that you want from your feces so that the discovery potential of the research being done in this space is just augmented very um, in significantly. And like Lisa says, what we're going to see coming out of the next few years is going to be uh, pretty exciting. So looking forward to that. I think that's an excellent call out. And one of the things that, you know, we're always focused on this podcast about is the fact that people are out there driving the science forward. Science is an iterative process. Um, so there was a void for a device and, and these folks were trying to fill it, right? And they were trying to understand and what to fill it. And then um, it drove DNA Genotech and, and Metabolon to, to work together to, to, to come up with this. And DNA Genotech certainly had the device and the expertise and Metabolon 
was happy to, to tag along and, and help validate that. So that's an excellent call out that these folks did great work uh, trying, trying to fill that void. Um, and now there's a, now there's a, a clear gold standard option. Um, I also would like to know, Heloise, um, with the new device, where can folks go to get more information? So you can go on to our website at dnagenotech.com. There are lots of different options uh, for you to request more information or request samples of this device. Uh, we'll put you in touch with some of our friendly folks in our customer service team who will be more than happy to provide you all the information you need to get your hands on it. Excellent. And Lisa, metabolon.com has uh, information about uh, using the tube for metabolon. Um, absolutely. The tube is now part of our sample submission guide and I believe um, is also covered on our microbiome, uh, the microbiome section of our website. Excellent. Excellent. I would like to thank both of you for joining us today. It's been an excellent conversation. I'm excited about this tube uh, and I'm excited about what the science uh, has in store for, for researchers and collaborators all over the world. So thank you again for coming and joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Closer to the Phenotype, brought to you by Metabolon, where scientists discuss and debate recent publications while illuminating the future of multiomics research. If you love the show, please rate us on iTunes so that we can continue to deliver amazing episodes. You can also visit our website, metabolon.com, to subscribe and never miss an episode. While there, check out our other resources like ebooks and webinars that expand on some of our more than 2,000 publications. You can also follow us on social media at LinkedIn and Twitter. If you have an idea for the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at podcast at metabolon.com. That's M-E-T-A-B-O-L-O-N.com. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Bobby Wiggs, inviting you to tune in next time. And I'd like to extend a special thank you to, to Chad Crouch for Algorithms, the intro and outro music.